Hi, everyone. It's Eileen, your host of the Lavender Lifestyle Podcast. I know, I know the podcast is supposed to be on hiatus, but I just wanted to upload this bonus episode for you guys because I did an awesome interview with my friend Clarissa Way on YouTube. It was for my Artist of Life series, and I figured that not everyone on my podcast watches my YouTube videos and vice versa, so it wouldn't hurt to just share it again here. So before I go into the interview, which is amazing, by the way, you should definitely listen to it. Um, I do have to announce that I'm doing a giveaway at the moment. So we've reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube and I'm just like so thankful and I wanted to do this giveaway for you guys. So I'm giving away three Amazon Fire tablets and I'm choosing three winners by next Wednesday, December 7th. So if you're listening to this episode before then, jump on it. I have the details on how to enter the giveaway on my blog, on my latest blog post, and in my latest video, which is the November favorites. So thank you guys so much for listening on the podcast and for supporting my YouTube channel, my blog. This is just my way to say thank you, I love you, and I can't wait to just keep creating for you guys. So now, on to the interview. What's up guys? Welcome back to Lavender. Today we're going to have our second episode of Artist of Life and I'm so excited to introduce my dear friend Clarissa Wei. So Clarissa is a freelance journalist who recently backpacked all across China, Taiwan and Tibet and she's written stories for Vice, Eater, LA Times, so many more and she's been on TV on travel channels Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and coming over. Yeah, so we met when you were writing about Chinese food. And I was working at 66 Night Market, a food festival in the area. So I feel like I've seen you grow so much and blossom into like a new woman, basically. Yeah, I remember, I think I was in New York when I first heard of the 66 Night Market Mm -hmm. and I knew it was going to be a big thing. And I think that was around 2012 or 2011. Mm -hmm. And that kind of marked a shift in Chinese food, I think, in Los Angeles. Yeah, it was like a big trend, right? To talk about (laughs) Chinese food. And you were basically, she was writing about all of the Chinese restaurants in the area. And I mean, I want to talk about like your shift in your journey. So can you talk about your dreams and goals then versus like your dreams and goals now? Yeah, so I think then, I mean, I was still in college, a senior, um, and then I just really wanted to write and become a journalist. um, And I kind of started writing about Chinese food in Los Angeles because it was the only topic that I knew more about than the average person, I would Mm -hmm. say, because I knew the language. Um, So then a lot of things were just focused on restaurants, you know, top 10 listicles or like the weird things you can eat, the stinky tofu, whatnot. Um, And then now it's changed to more of, I'm a lot more conscious of where food comes from. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my goal, trying to get people to think about where our food is coming from. So before it was more on like the trendy surface level, right? Of the food and then now you're going deeper. Yeah, because it was like, you know, a lot of people are obsessed with Yelp or obsessed with going out to eat. That's just the culture of Los Angeles. But after doing this for four or five years, it's kind of like, what's the point of all of that? You know, we're going out to eat and I'm always writing about these restaurants. Um, but it's like, why do I find a restaurant trendy or why do I like it? And it's because, you know, people in the media push it through. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about your huge trip to Asia. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about why you decided to go in the first place? 
Sure. So I had been writing about Chinese food for such a long time, and it was like I just need to go there. And granted, I've spent considerable time in、um, Taiwan and China already,、mm -hmm. um, but this time was like I'm going to get in deep and talk to people. Yeah.、Um, go to the source. Exactly.、Yeah. And then I'm really glad I did because I found out. Our perception of what Chinese food is there is completely different from what it is、like um, in reality.、Um, for example, we think of the eastern, southeastern seaboard side, all the way from Guangdong area, Hong Kong to Shanghai, as a huge seafood place、mm -hmm. or a huge fish place.、Um, but I think, a, you know, because of pollution,、um, a majority or a good chunk of lakes and rivers are highly polluted now. And so the fish that we wax poetic about isn't actually fresh fish. And、um, there was a one huge example. It was in Chinese New Year's, and I was taking a cooking class. And there was a, a Shanghai ayi, an auntie, and I asked her, "Oh, you're gonna have fish for Chinese New Year's, right? Because fish,、um, it's a symbol of unity, and、mm -hmm. it's、um, something that people on the southeastern side eat a lot. And especially for Chinese New Year's, you have to eat a whole fish."、Yeah. And she just kind of laughs at me, and she's like. No, I'm not going to eat fish. Why would I eat fish? Really?、And、at this point, I'm kind of shocked. So no one eats fish anymore. Yeah, and she's like, "It's disgusting. It's so、wow. dirty. Like, why would I eat fish?" Wow. <laughs> and she was kind of, you know, getting on me for not knowing that too. I see. So I know that you started in the cities and then you decided to go to more remote areas. Can、yeah. you talk about what attracted you to those like rural areas? Sure. So I started in Shanghai because it was just kind of what was familiar to me, like Taipei and Shanghai.、Mm -hmm. You know, my goal was to learn about the food, and when I went there, I kind of realized the food culture is very similar to that of the states,、mm -hmm. and that. You know, people want trendy brunch restaurants with the perfect Instagram. Yeah.、Um, I mean, they don't have Instagram there. The perfect WeChat frame. Oh.、Um, and all the food, people didn't really know where the food was coming from. It was all centralized distributors,、um, and I just like wasn't getting the story I wanted. I remember going to the city of Uxi, which has the sweetest food in all、mm -hmm. of China. Like they have pork ribs, which are just covered in sauce,、yeah. like sweet sugar. And、um, Jenny Yang,、um, a friend of mine, and I were standing in a grocery store, and it just we just started yelling like, "Why is the food here so sweet?" <laughs> and all of these old like Chinese grandmothers kind of gathered around us, like town hall style,、um, like on the street. You're just, just like, in the grocery、yelling. store,、oh, in the grocery、okay. store, because we were just frustrated, and we、yeah. were just like talking really loudly、yeah. in Chinese. But then it drew the attention of all these like Chinese grandmothers,、yeah. and everyone was like, "I don't know, this is a tradition of our ancestors,"、yeah. and it was just. At that point, I realized that people in this city are out of touch with their food culture.、Mm -hmm. Not that there's anything bad with that; it's just that's not their priority,、mm -hmm. right? Because their priority is, you know, working in an office, getting money.、Mm -hmm. There's no connection to the land. So、right. after that, I decided to book it to a very remote <laughs>、um, town and at the base of、um, Yellow Mountain because I、mm -hmm. figured that is where I'm going to learn more about food、yeah. with these people who know how to grow food. So what did you find when you went? To that area. Yeah, so I was in a hostel and then、um, at Huangshan、um, at the base, and then the owners really liked me. And after that, they said, "Okay, come with me. I'm gonna take you to my lodge, my old house.、Mm -hmm. And it's a mountain that, if you Google it, there will be no information about it online. It's, it's not on, on the map. map. <laughs> it's not on the map. I mean, it's on the map technically, but no one knows about、right. it. Um, and we like hiked to a graveyard because it was the birthday of her dead, the hundredth birthday、mm -hmm. of her dead grandmother,、mm -hmm. and there were just like so much vegetation there. And they use human feces to、um, mm -hmm. fertilize、wow. the soil, <laughs> and it's called night soil.、Yeah. And if it's done properly, it's actually really it. 
it's really good for the soil. Yeah. Um, and then when we were cooking, it was like, you know, river frog that they caught. It was, you so know, they grow their, their own food. They grow their own, their own food. food. And it's not a trendy hipster thing for them there. It's because they're so isolated. It was kind of a flashback to the past almost. And right. it kind of made me nostalgic for what could have been or what was. Let's talk about your biggest struggle. Like, I know you've hit a lot of like yeah. rock bottom moments in your journey because I saw you post about yeah. them. So can you share like the big one? Yeah, I mean, um, battling in the trains, and when I say battling in the trains is like getting a ticket was really hard mm -hmm. just because the culture there is people don't line up. And oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of that is just because back then they had a fight to get their food. And so mm -hmm. that's just kind of ingrained in the culture. So that was frustrating, like waking up every day and, and just being like, okay, it's battle time. Like, we got <laughs> a push, war out it's there. a war out there. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then actually one of my lowest points was living in a large city. I was in Taipei mm -hmm. um, for a while writing about restaurants. Um, and I was hired to um, put together a guidebook of the best restaurants there. And I say a low point um, because I just like did not like the work I was yeah. doing. Um, it was what great did they ask work. you to do? Just to write a guidebook okay. and go to 200 restaurants in a couple of mm -hmm. months. And it was a great gig and I met a lot of great friends there. But just that work made me realize just how much I don't like the restaurants. Yeah, scene. it's not what you wanted to write it's about. It's not what I want to write about. Also in Taiwan, what I started to see is that there are more coffee shops and tea shops, mm -hmm. and French restaurants are the new hot thing there. Mm -hmm. So all the cool things that we like about Taiwan here in Los Angeles, you know, stinky tofu, fan, um, all these authentic things, people in Taiwan don't necessarily prioritize Maybe they're like anymore. sick of it. They're kind of sick of right. it. Um, granted, there are a couple of players who are trying to change that and trying to elevate that mm -hmm. cuisine, but by and large, the average person is more obsessed with Western style food. Yeah, I think that goes for a lot of Asian, Asian areas that are modernizing. Yeah, and so that was very frustrating to see how Western modes of consumption is what Asian mode of consumption is too. Mm -hmm. They're consuming how we're, um, we're consuming because yeah. of Hollywood, because of the media. So we kind of set the standard we here. We set the standard. Yeah. So I heard you got kicked out of Tibet. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I wanted to go to Mount Everest and I was at the city right before Mount Everest uh -huh. um, when the tour guide called me into the police station. She says, there's something wrong with your documentation. The police want to talk to you. Oh, so I go in there and the woman looks at me and she said, why don't you have an entry stamp on your passport? And I'd gone in with my American passport, and I tell her, well, I had gone into China with my Taiwan passport. Mm -hmm. And apparently you can't do that because in China, they don't recognize Taiwan. Um, they recognize Taiwan as part of China, and as yeah. a Chinese person, you can't have dual citizenship. So long yeah. story short, it was just a problem of the documentation. And yeah. she's like, oh, I can kick you out, or no, I can put you into jail, but I'm just going to kick you out of yeah. Tibet, so go back to the main city, go to Lhasa, and get the first ticket out. Um, but they had closed the airport a couple days before because of a, a government official, mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. Um, so there was no ticket out. So I was kind of stuck in Lhasa by myself for three days, um, but it was Wait, so how did you get out? You just had to take a bus and... I took a leave, car or? to okay. Lhasa, and yeah. then there was a flight out 
Yeah. But I, there were no available flights earlier than what I had. Yeah. So I was just stuck in Lhasa. So what did you well, do? My, um, I went to a Tibetan rock concert because I had met a girl there <laughs> uh-huh. um, who was Tibetan. And she just took me to a local rock concert, which was awesome. Yeah. And I met some very famous artists um, as mm-hmm. well, like oil painters. Awesome. So it was, like, really cool. I don't um, regret it, but it kind of sucked not being able to go to Mount Everest. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure, like, when things go wrong, it leads you to something better. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I mean, on that car ride back, I met a woman who introduced me to a professor who turned the entire country of Bhutan organic. Yeah. And then I did an article That's crazy. on him. Yeah, so, I mean, I was upset, but I didn't have a mental breakdown because of uh-huh. that, because at this point, I'd been used to so many things going wrong. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Can you talk about what you think was the most memorable part of your trip overall? Yeah, um, so the most surreal was camping with Tibetan nomads yeah. in the Tibetan grasslands in Lamosa in Sichuan province. Um, and why that was so surreal to me was that they can make so much out of so little. So they live in a yak hair tent, and the space is, you know, probably as a little bit bigger than this table or wow. this patio. Yeah. Um, and they're able to, you know, make their food, um, have dinner there. Their entire life just revolves in this tent. Mm-hmm. And over here in America, we have so much land. Yeah. We don't really know what to do with all of it, you know, or we're using it in a very inefficient way. Mm-hmm. So I saw people, for example, when people cook, they only use, you know, one butcher knife. Whereas here, People get really confused if you give them one butcher knife. They have to have all their, like, fancy paring knives yeah. and their different sizes. A little excessive. Exactly. Or, yeah. you know, they just have one cutting board, and they mm-hmm. just make do with what they have. Um, so I think that lesson, being in such a remote place, but seeing how much they had with so mm-hmm. little was the most surreal. Yeah. So you really don't need that much. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you talk about their lifestyle? Like, yeah. what does that even look like to be a nomad? So it's really hard for a woman... Um, they have to wake up the woman, and they're in their 20s, and they have, like, mm-hmm. two children already. Yeah. Um, they wake up at 4 a.m., and they milk their yaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during the day, they have to dry out the milk curds um, because they use it. That's, like, part of their food. They just eat dairy um, and yak because nothing grows up there because it's So they make everything elevation. from yak milk, mm-hmm. basically? Yeah. Cheese and butter? Yeah, but now with the introduction, you know, of motorcycles and roads, they mm-hmm. have vegetables. Okay. But mostly, they just make butter, cheese, and milk. Um, and Do then they the eat woman, bread or rice with it? They make it into a thing called zampa. It's um, black tea with highland barley powder, like a yeah. flour and uh-huh. butter. And then they knead it, oh. so it's kind of like a protein bar. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the women also have to herd the yaks, too. Mm-hmm. So they're out, and then dinner doesn't start until 9, 10 p.m. Wow. And then they sleep, and then they wake up, and they... So it's, it's like an all-day of work. Yeah, and then also, if you think about it, the tent, it's not a big tent, so they're always bent over mm-hmm. and I realized like how flexible they were because they're always <laughs> kind of in bent over position right. at a tent, just like making food yeah. or like cleaning things mm-hmm. um they also have to lay down the yak poop um, and then let it dry in the sun and there's a pile on every what single tent for? it's for fire so every oh, single okay. tent has a pile of just dried yak poop and the women Crazy. will carry it in on their backs Dang. and they also carry in the water from the stream yeah. so it's a really hard hard lifestyle yeah How has your trip changed you as a person? Yeah, I think um, it's made me really aware of where food comes from. For example, um, I was at Tsangong, which is the last traditional fishing harbor in Taiwan, Mm -hmm. and I just saw hundreds of sharks, Mm -hmm. like strewn across my feet. Um, And that's bycatch, so 
bycatch is when you are you have a long net and you're trying to catch say mahi mahi or like ahi yeah. tuna, but then like sharks will come in. And so I've realized that you know bycatch happens all over the world and even you know in places like the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference is that in the United States we're not allowed to bring the sharks on in, in yeah. so we don't see it. Whereas Taiwan you actually see it. So what do they do with it? They They'll actually the sell sharks. the meat, but it's actually oh, the cheapest okay. cut of meat, ironically. Shark tuna, is the cheapest? It's the cheapest, yeah. or one of the cheapest. Wow. Yeah, tuna is the most expensive, bluefin tuna. Yeah. But they were, like, so small. Um, and then when I was hanging with the ocean tribe, the Amezu mm -hmm. in Taiwan, they basically said, we're out of fish. Mm -hmm. And it was so kind of jarring to me that, you know, this tribe knows more about the state of our earth and consumption patterns than the average city person, and we're yeah. the one who's... We are the people who are consuming so much. So is this just happening in Taiwan, or is it like happening everywhere else? It's happening everywhere else. So it's a uh -huh. global issue. Yeah. Um, for like I said earlier, all our consumption patterns are interlinked. So, mm -hmm. you know, ninety percent of our seafood is imported. Where is it imported from? It's imported from China. Um, spiny lobster in California. Ninety-five percent of that is given to China. Mm. So it's all interlinked. Yeah. Um, and it's we need to kind of address it from both sides. Um, it's just that in China and Taiwan, it was easier to see because mm -hmm. here everything's kind of behind closed doors because of regulations um, for good reason too. Yeah. But there, there are no regulations. Yeah. So it's kind of in the thick of it. And I was able to talk to people and kind of at the beginning of where they're starting to develop and become more like the United States. So mm -hmm. it's more raw there and I was able to find more stories. But it's the yeah. same thing happening here. Um, for example, um, algae blooms, you know, that's happening in China. It's ruining their water supply. Mm -hmm. What it's is happening. algae bloom? Algae bloom happens um, based on industrial runoff, and the lake is so rich with minerals that the algae will bloom, and it makes the water toxic, and you can't drink it. Mm -hmm. So year after year, the algae blooms are getting more and more severe, and that's actually happening in California, too. Mm -hmm. um, another parallel is desertification. So what happened with the Dust Bowl was that because we're planting um, a lot of crops that ruin the soil right. layer, um, and then it just it kind of became land. a desert. And that's happening so much in China right now. I remember wow. being um, at a Tibetan plateau, and then next to it, I saw sand dunes, and I was like, cool, this is like a two-in-one deal. You know, <laughs> I can come here and like hang out with the yaks and the plateau, yeah. and then I can like slide on sand dunes. And I so go are those sand dunes natural, or they were created? Exactly. So I go yeah. back to the hostel, and the hostel owner says you know, that's happening because of desertification. They're turning mm. these places into farmland, and it's ruining the soil layer. So, so there's farming a, too much. Yeah, farming way too much. Um, yeah. Because they have to feed all these people. All of the first world. Exactly. Which so. is like a vicious cycle. It's a vicious yeah. cycle. Um, and they're also just consuming like Americans, you know, um, meat wasn't a really big mm -hmm. part of the Chinese diet. I mean, pork is really big, but I mean, if you go to any Chinese restaurant, the meat is kind of on the side mm -hmm. or there's just a little bit, but because of, again, American patterns yeah. of consumption, it's Steak more and, and more barbecue. Meat. Exactly. <laughs> I see. Clearly there are a lot of issues wrong with our consumption cycle, like where food comes from. Where do you think your ideal world looks like? Like, how would you want us to shift for the future? I think we can generate value out of waste. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this whole concept called the blue economy, which is um, Gunther Pauli's a really good research mm -hmm. for that. Um, but for example, you can grow mushrooms out of coffee ground. Yeah, in that's crazy. Yeah, in Taiwan, there's a technology to convert 
plastic into fuel. Wow. Um, just a lot of things we can be using the waste that we generate mm -hmm. into making something very valuable. You know, mm -hmm. if you own a juice bar and you have orange peels, you can turn that into something. Yeah. Um, I saw a company that was converting coffee grounds into clothes, and mm. coffee grounds are really good with absorbing odors. Um, and so they sold that to, you know, Patagonia and yeah. different sportswear places because, you know, when you sweat, it'll absorb that odor. Yeah. Where's so, that company based? Taiwan. Oh, yeah. So Taiwan's a huge innovator for Crazy. these um, technologies. It's just marketing. <laughs> so do you think it's just an issue of, like, timing? It's going to take a long time for these things to catch on? Or... I think it's awareness, yeah. too. I Before I went on this China trip and saw things for myself, I knew of all of these issues about, you know, global warming, climate mm -hmm. change, etc. But I didn't realize how relevant it was until I met people. So I think it's telling the right stories yeah. and letting people see how relevant it is to each and every one of yeah. us. For example, when I talked to a tribe member at the most remote tribe in Taiwan, mm -hmm. he says when he was young, you know, at 11 a.m. or at 10 a.m. it was bearable and they could work in the fields, but now by 10, 11, it's so hot they can't even work anymore. Because of global warming. Oh, because of global warming. Mm -hmm. And then so you just realize how relevant it is to Yeah, everyone. it affects everyone. Yeah, but here we don't see it as much because we all get our food from the same areas mm -hmm. um, and it's a very centralized there's like system. a veil between exactly. what we see here. We yeah. just shop at the supermarket and yeah. that's it. But then if you, I think in Los Angeles, if you go out of your way, you'll mm -hmm. be able to see it. So mm -hmm. last week I went scuba diving for spiny lobsters. Mm -hmm. and, and spiny lobsters, are apparently, I didn't eat it, but it's tastier um, and sweeter than the main lobster. Mm -hmm. So why aren't we eating it here? Because Chinese people have bought it. So all of that is getting shipped to China oh, and only okay. scuba divers kind of get access to it. So in your opinion, what's something that we as regular everyday people can do to like start improving the way things are? Um, I would say start very small. And um, here's an example. I don't know how small it is, mm -hmm. but um, California have been in a huge drought for mm -hmm. years. It's the, one of the worst droughts in history. But instead of watering our green lawns, we could be using that water to grow to food for us. Mm -hmm. um, the water that we get is all imported from Colorado. We're stealing yeah. water from Col uh, Colorado and Northern California, but we can mm -hmm. be using that water to grow food, which is much more efficient and it generates value. Yeah. Or you can kill your lawns. Because like lawns are a waste of exactly, land. Exactly, they're right? a waste of land. They uh -huh. don't do anything. Um, if you kind of realize, if you walk towards suburbia, you won't see many birds or butterflies or bees because mm -hmm. there are no native plants really work if you have native plants that attract native pollinators and mm. you'll create a food forest um and it's just a much more dynamic space than yeah. i think <laughs> and if you plant native plants they won't need as much water as these mm -hmm. new england plants that we have that require so much water yeah it doesn't make sense so a lot of it is like really being aware and educating yourself yeah. on what is a native plant how to be efficient exactly also like did you know a sprinkler when it sprays that water, 50% of that water is actually evaporated. Oh, yeah. So it, like, yeah. doesn't do anything. Yeah. So it's like, what are we doing? We're just kind of following these paradigms that we're given. Um, yeah. You're just following the system, like, how p things have been going. Yeah. I think another thing that people can do is, is to be more aware of what they eat, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, I know eating out is a huge part of our culture mm. here. But if we had more times where we cooked for one another or went to farmer's markets and were more aware of where our food came from, I don't think we would 
just buy things for the sake of buying things. So it's having a relationship, too. And that was yeah. something I realized in my travels. The people who had a very intense relationship with the land and with their food, they were much happier in general. Mm -hmm. That's not a scientific thing, but that was just something I noticed. Yeah. Why do you think so? Um, so what I, the best example was the most remote tribe in Taiwan, right? And because they all had a vested interest in their land, mm -hmm. everyone worked together. And I think that's kind of, everyone wants the community. community. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone wants community, but community is created when you kind of have a common cause mm -hmm. or a certain values, right? Yeah. And when your value is on that land, you not only take care of that land so it's fertile and it feeds you and mm -hmm. shades you, but you work together and you have that yeah. common thing. And yeah. it's not something abstract, which can be, you know, that just depends on different mm -hmm. values. It's not a religion. It's a physical thing that you can cultivate and work on together. Yeah, and I, I feel like our culture now, we're so isolated. We live in our own homes. We like get in our own little car and we don't really connect. Yeah, it's that whole philosophy of being present, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's mentally being present and like I guess spiritually being present, but like physically being present. Mm -hmm. How many people actually know, you know, the composition of our soil or no. know how to <laughs> cultivate that? And you know, the state of our land here in LA, it's you know kind of sad. There's a lot of lead in the soil wow, really? too. Yeah, and we have um, the highest amount of um, empty parking lots mm -hmm. in all of the United States, mm -hmm. um, and we can be using that to grow things to cultivate mm -hmm. the community. Um, and to grow food, because food does, at the end of the day, bring people together. Yeah, it does. Um, but if you go to a restaurant and you just gather around food, it's a very temporary thing. But if you have an relation, ongoing relationship mm -hmm. with the land, it'll, not only, it'll grow the community yeah. as well. Awesome. Now, I want to ask you, now that your trip is done, mm -hmm. what's next for you? Um, so now I'm really focused on finding out where things, where food comes from in America, too. Because mm -hmm. I found that out for China, and that was really cool. Um, but I think it's much more relevant if we tie it back into mm -hmm. our own land. Um, and I'm, I might be going to a farming program in Iowa. Yeah. So I just want to learn more about how to grow our own food mm -hmm. and where food comes from. So that includes like going scuba diving and I'm taking a hunting seminar. Oh, wow. Like which fish is actually edible. Yeah. Um, and I'm really into native plants. Mm -hmm. So like acorn is a huge native staple here. Mm -hmm. It's like their main thing. They used to make acorn pudding and acorn mash. Wow. And acorn noodles. We don't really eat it. We don't <laughs> eat it, but we could be using that, right? Right. <laughs> um, you can make different concoctions with like elderberry, which mm -hmm. grows wildly when you go hiking. Mm -hmm. So I think the more I understand about local, like very local, and I'm yeah. not talking just like, like California, backyard. Local, like backyard yeah. local, the more you're able to teach people about it. And there's mm -hmm. not a lot of knowledge out there. You're basically saying we have so many resources like in our backyard, but we're yeah. not really being efficient with our food. Yeah, so let's just take Los Angeles or California, mm -hmm. for example. Okay, well, let's start with the United States. The United States controls more ocean territory than any other nation on mm -hmm. Earth. Yet 90% of our seafood is imported. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, where does it go? It goes we, abroad. We, yeah. yeah. Um, so in California, when I went scuba diving, there's hundreds of uni sea uh -huh. urchins on the ground. And like, yeah. as an Asian person, we love uni. That's mm -hmm. like really expensive. Yeah. They're kind of invasive. But oh, okay. no one's eating them, or if we are catching them, we're importing into Japan or China yeah. or other countries. Maybe because they'll it. pay more for it. They'll pay more for it. Yeah. And it's not, it's because they'll pay more for it, but it's also because there's no local demand. So mm -hmm. if we educated ourselves on what's invasive and what's local, we could totally change consumption patterns. Mm -hmm. And I think this is up to the jobs of chefs 
and people in the media and just the general public, people who are buying things. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in Sichuan province, I went foraging for an herb called the fish mint, and it kind of tastes like cilantro. Um, and then I Googled it in English, and I realized, I think, um, in the East Coast, it's considered an invasive plant. Yeah. And all these, like, gardeners are talking about, how do I get rid of it? Like, I hate By it. By that, you mean, like, it's a weed and people yeah, don't like it, Yeah, it's a weed. Right? Mm -hmm. um, in Lanzhou, Gansu province, there's a plant called Penhui Tal, which they make into and they put into the noodles, and mm -hmm. that's what makes it stretchy when they yeah. pull it. They have it in Joshua Traits, considered, oh. like, a pest also. Really? There's just so much of it. <laughs> so some things we consider here, like, we not useful are actually useful for food. Yeah, like the first time I went scuba diving, um, I saw sea urchin, and then on the boat, I was like, why aren't we eating the sea urchin? And everyone's like, you can eat sea urchin. That's really? disgusting. Because American people don't eat yeah. any. Yeah, <laughs> or Western people, yeah, they, yeah. It's not part of the culture. So I think mm -hmm. this cultural swap and a lot right. of indigenous people um, in the United States, they have that knowledge, and believe it or not, a lot of them are still, like, it's not a thing of the past. They still mm -hmm. exist, and mm -hmm. it's still very relevant, too. Wow. Mm -hmm. So kind of my vision, and this is a little bit utop utopia, if you will, mm -hmm. is just what if we had suburbia with um, food forests in our front yards with, like, fruit trees, and then, yeah. like, kids would want to, you know, they could gather the fruit, and there'd yeah. just be more interaction between people. Yeah. And I'm really convinced there's just a correlation between taking care of the land and taking care of your community mm -hmm. and just happiness in general. Yeah. So like if everyone grew their own certain fruits or vegetables and you can share with and each other. And share it with people yeah. too. I mean, we have front yards that are green and no one uses it. People don't roll around in yeah. it anymore. Yeah. But if we had, you know, a food forest um, mm -hmm. with so many different types of varieties, it wouldn't just be people, too. It'd be, if you go to the Arboretum, you'll see hummingbirds and butterflies oh, yeah. and all of these different Bringing creatures. Bringing nature alive Bringing again. nature back. Yeah. Yeah. And um, why I had that theory is if you go hiking out in the mountains, any hike you go to and you see a stranger, people will say hi to you. Yeah, people are so And nice. that's just the culture, too, when you're mm -hmm. in nature because it's like you are not the main thing. There. Yeah, yeah, and I think if we bring nature and we stop separating it with you know fences and like mm -hmm. making it a weekend activity, if we just integrate ourselves with it, mm -hmm. we would have a much better community. I love it. I think it's beautiful. So, last question: Do you have any advice for any aspiring writers, journalists, or travelers out there? Um, I think put yourself in a zone that you are not comfortable with mm -hmm. because I think that's where the best stories will arise so I think I started with that last year I went to Nicaragua to hike volcanoes I was a volcano yeah. trekking guide and that was an experience I did not think I was going to write about or I just like kind of wanted to take a break and it was so out of my comfort zone that I just found a lot of different stories mm -hmm. because things were just new and different and I saw things from a different perspective from that yeah. so I think if you want to be a writer if you want to be a creative person and you're out of ideas and you just think you're in a slump then put yourself in a zone that makes you uncomfortable because mm -hmm. that will change your perspective on right. certain things thanks so much for doing this <laughs> yeah, with thank me you. I, I like I love you so much as a person I think you're so cool thank you this yeah. is great all right, I hope you guys liked that interview as much as I did. Make sure you check out Clarissa Way on her website, clarissaway.com. That's spelled C-L-A-R-I-S-S-A-W-E-I. -S -S 
www.clarissapway.com or find her on Facebook at Clarissa P. Way or on Twitter at Dear Clarissa. Trust me, her posts are always inspiring, very progressive. They just make you believe that there is a positive future for our earth and I just love her so much. So thank you guys for listening to this one. Make sure you catch me on YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. Everything is Lavendaire. And I guess I will see you guys or I guess I will talk to you guys in 2017. Oh, also, if you guys have any people that you admire, people that you'd want me to interview for the podcast season of 2017, please email me at submissions at lavendaire.com. I'm kind of creating a list of my dream people to interview but I'd love to get your suggestions on who you want me to interview who you want to hear on the show so that's it love you all bye bye